They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw a man who had been pressed, possessed by the legion of demons, sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. So the Lord went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Writing just about, <clears throat> excuse me, just about six, uh, 700 years before Christ, the prophet Isaiah, anticipating Christmas, wrote this. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. This is Isaiah 9, starting in verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. By the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of, of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Uh, Jesus brings with him light into the darkness. And what we see here in this text is that happening. Uh, it's not, it doesn't just happen, you know, on the day of his birth, that nativity manger scene, but it acted out throughout his life and then ultimately led him to the cross. And so what we see in today's text is Jesus coming up front, you know, face to face with evil itself. Uh, that's the topic of today's message, by the way, is evil, spiritual darkness. It's a huge topic. And the text that we're looking at today uh, doesn't cover all of it. So if there's any questions afterwards, please find me. There's also so much in this text that I can't possibly cover it all in one day. Again, see me today if you have any questions from a biblical perspective. If anything uh, rises up, like what does this mean about this or that, find me afterwards. 
But by and large, this concept of evil and spiritual darkness, this transcendent realm of the spirituality, is something our 21st century modern culture uh, tends to reject, does it not? Uh, But most of the world does not reject it, and the Bible does not reject it. What we're going to see here in this text, uh, I want to draw three things out here. One is the reality of evil. Two is Jesus' power over evil, and then I want to consider what does this mean for us today, okay? So the reality of evil, Jesus' power over evil, and what, what does this mean for us today? So let me go ahead and pray, and then and we'll get into this. Father, as ever, I just ask that uh, this message would not be David's thoughts, David's advice, David's musings, but this would be uh, your word teaching us through your spirit touching us. And with such a, a huge mysterious topic of evil and and spiritual darkness, would you help us understand what it is you have for us here today? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So the reality of evil, uh, you know, I was sitting here, I was sitting there this week trying to figure out, okay, what do I do with this text? Can you imagine, you know, looking at this text and thinking, okay, how does this apply today? So I'm sitting there like, where's this going? How is this going to apply on Sunday as we think about this? And I, I realized that it started to click together for me. It, it, this mysterious passage started to make sense when I understood that the key of it is seeing it through the lens of the 12 disciples, who, by the way, aren't even mentioned in the story. How can we see it through the, disciples, uh, through the lens of the disciples? Well, it's, it's in that over the last few chapters that we've been looking at in the book of Mark leading up to chapter 5, Jesus has been pouring into these guys. He's been equipping them. He's been teaching them. And at the, at the beginning of Mark 4, he has this lesson for them. The kingdom of God is like a seed. It's as, as humble beginnings. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. It's not, you know, the kingdom of God is not like a sword. It's not like fire. It's not like a hammer. It's actually far more powerful than any of those things in terms of its scope, in terms of the area that it can ultimately cover. But Jesus says, you have to trust me. It's a gradual process, but you have to trust me. And you have to trust me, by the way, through adversity. And then at the end of Mark 4, it's like he's sending them through a real-time life lesson of this. They get in the boat to go across the sea. We looked at this two weeks ago. And they are met with this furious storm, a squall. And these professional fishermen are scared for their lives. Water's coming into the boat. They're bailing. And they look to see what Jesus is doing. And there are, they are incredulous because what is Jesus doing? He is sleeping. Like, Jesus, they wake him up. Don't you care that we're about to die? And it's, it's awesome how Jesus deals with this. He gets up, and very calmly it says, he rebukes the wind and the waves. It's quiet. Be still. And then he sa- it says, he rebuked the disciples. Guys, how can you be so afraid? Do you still not have faith? That's chapter 40, verse uh, ch- chapter 4, verse 40. Basically saying to these guys, look, I've been talking about this. There's going to be adversity. Storms are going to come at you, but you can trust me through them. I'm Lord of creation. I'm Lord over the storm. You can trust me. I'm with you. But uh, verse 41, which concludes that story, uh, is, is, is an awesome little note here. It says they're actually even more, they became more terrified about this man who calmed the wind and the waves than they had been about the wind and waves themselves. Like, who is this man? He calms the storm. He calms the winds and the waves. Well, it's there that we pick up today's story. They had just crossed the Sea of Galilee. They're still trying to figure out what on earth is this all about? What is Jesus trying to teach us? And they pull up to the Decapolis. 
That is the 10 cities. Actually, there's a few more than 10 cities, but that's just what they called the general region. Uh, the, the, the place of the Gerasenes, it was Gentile territory, which that all that means is it was non-Jewish territory. And for the, the disciples, they would have been thinking, what on earth are we doing here? This is enemy territory. We don't associate with these people. You know, we get into fights with these people when we get into close quarters. We don't do this. And what's more is this place was known for being a position of, of, strong, of a strong Roman presence. Namely, there was an army that was, uh, a few armies that were located there. Uh, we know this because Pompey conquered the Decapolis in 67 B BC before Christ. And he left his army there. And scholars tell us that the fact that there were 20 pigs on the mountainside uh, essentially confirms that there was this large army presence because you know, meat was a luxury back then. It wasn't just, you know, everybody got it. The VIPs got it. That many, for so many VIPs, almost certainly meant that there was this big Roman presence there. Jesus, what are we doing here? This is enemy territory. And by the way, it's so remote. Why would you bring us here? There have been a lot of people, as I'm sure you can imagine, who have gone around the shores of the Sea of Galilee trying to figure out where's the place. And they always note that it's always very, it's a place that's uninhabitable, there's all these hills. There's only a few places where you can get out of a boat. It's rocky. The villages are, are, are nearby, but they're not in this general area. What we see in this scene playing out is they're obviously in a remote place. The disciples must have been thinking, Jesus, why did you bring us here? You brought us through a storm. You brought us here. Why? And what we see is Jesus had just shown them that he is Lord over creation. He is Lord of the storm. Trust me. Now what we see him showing us is that he is Lord over over good versus evil. He is the Lord that triumphs over evil. This guy comes up to them, uh, this, this uh, man who is demon-possessed, and all these things start to play out. And what's really interesting here is Mark, this is the, this is the longest passage, this is, these are the most verses recorded in the book of Mark of any one single account encounter between Jesus and somebody he heals. 20 verses. What scholars also tell us is that Matthew, Luke, and John, the other writers of the gospel accounts, seem to spend a lot more time with these stories. Mark is always very, very brief and to the point. And yet here, he kind of slows down, and there's this whole scene that plays out. All these details. The man was stripped of his clothes, running around. He was bound, and he had been able to break through the chains, that he had cut himself, that he was crying out, that he was living among the tombs. Uh, what's interesting is verse 8, I wonder if you noticed this when it was being read, it says that Jesus had actually called the demon out of him and he didn't come out right away. Like, what's all, that all about? Did Jesus not have the power to heal this guy? I mean, was Jesus in trouble versus this demon? I mean, as we see this story play out, that's not the case. But it is worth noting when we see it in parallel to the storm, the natural force and the spiritual force, Mark is saying there's a little bit more going on here. There's a little bit more of a struggle. And then in verse 9, it's interesting, like, what's this whole deal about Jesus asking the demon's name? That never happens to other places in the scripture, other places when this happens. He says, what's your name? And, and, and the demon responds, uh, my name is Legion, for we are many. What's the deal with that? Why this detail? It seems to me what Mark is doing, what Jesus is doing, is showing us that this man's condition was really serious. I mean, it wasn't just one or two demons. It was a legion, which back then, a legion in the Roman, well, that was 600 troops, uh, soldiers, excuse me. And so th this is a, 
you know, as a very unified resulting power that really enabled the Romans to conquer the known world back then. And here he's saying, you know, this is my name, Legion. We are many. Here's the point. The Bible doesn't bat an eye in, in saying and in teaching that spiritual, spiritual darkness, evil exists, and it's serious. Now, I think for some of us, our response will be, and I've heard this before as well, back in the Old Testament times, back in ancient, you know, Palestine, they didn't have the categories for these things that we do today. For instance, they didn't know about mental illness or mental suffering like we do today, and that's probably what was going on here. But that's just not the case. We see, for instance, in Matthew 4, 24, this very interesting uh, time where Jesus is healing many, and it says they brought various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. One of those ver- words in there, those having seizures, is actually, um, that's how my uh, translation says it, it's actually a more general word. Uh, some of your Bibles might say uh, the word insanity. It's a catch-all phrase to actually encompass encompass mental illness and mental suffering. Mental illness is something that the Bible takes very seriously, that we need healing from, that we need redemption from. But in this verse, as you see, it's in parallel to and contrasted with demon possession. So it's not that. And then I think the vast majority of, of, of us or those around us would say, well, you know what, okay, I just don't buy the concept of evil at all. This idea of spiritual darkness, the spiritual realm, we're just chemistry, we're just biology. We're just synapses. But that's problematic. There's uh, an, an author named Andrew Delbanco, uh, who, uh, a self-described liberal secularist out of Columbia University. He wrote this book called The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost the Sense of Evil. And in it, he really argues that if we, that as a society, as a whole, uh, we've, we've created for ourselves a problem of dealing with evil and just suggesting that it's just a psychological or physiological problem or that it's a result of chemical imbalances because we're unable to name evil for what it is and deal with it. He was once asked after writing this book, well, how could you write this? You know, by your own definition, you're a secularist. You know, how could you come to this conclusion? And he said, because of the Holocaust. So I'm a grandchild of Eastern European Jews, meaning some of my family members were killed in the Holocaust. And he said, if you just say, if we just say that the Nazis were a result of being poorly raised, that trivializes it. Or if all we do is accept that it's the process of evolution and survival of the fittest, that notion, then we have no basis, no foundation for saying it, saying that it was wrong at all, let alone evil, which it was, he says. And actually, here's how he kind of encompasses his thought. He says, the gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. Have you guys heard that quote, uh, the greatest trick that the devil pulled was convincing us that he doesn't exist? The Bible teaches that evil exists. Uh, First of all, corporately, and I'll be brief here because this is... um, not so much directly related in this text, but evil exists corporately, meaning it operates in and from within uh, systems of power. Uh, you know, we don't need the Nazis as an example to understand. This is happening today. When you look across the world, I mean, parts of the Middle East, parts of Africa, 
parts of Asia. I mean, there's some really scary things going on around the world today. I mean, even here in the U.S. And it doesn't have to be the monstrosities that we sometimes hear about, try not to think about too much. It can just be the subtle abuses of power, of oppression that holds the little guy back, causes harm, persecution in whatever way. Evil exists corporately, but evil also exists personally. And by the way, it's not the monstrosities as seen in the news or as portrayed on, on, in TV, but it's a little closer to home. For instance, it's interesting that Paul, in writing to the early churches, what he would often say is, now beware of falling in the devil's trap. Or in Ephesians 4, he says it this way, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Or Jesus at times saying, it's out of the heart that comes evil. Now, what's interesting here is in, in none of those cases were Paul or Jesus talking to those other people. He was talking to Jesus, his own followers. Paul was writing to the early church and saying, we cannot say, oh, evil just is over there. But we have to wrestle with it in here. It's a condition in our heart. What do we do with that? The prophet Jeremiah summarized it this way, saying, the heart is desperately deceitful. It's wicked. There's something in us that can get a hold of us. The Bible teaches that we have everyday choices between good and evil. Everyday choices between choosing what God would have for us or what the evil one would have for us. For example, temptation. I mean, this is kind of a more straightforward example. Okay, if we give in to the temptation of anger, of selfishness, of greed, or say even like the temptation of refusing to forgive. That can have a real power on our lives, can it not? It can bind us. It can, it can make us cry out. You know, refusing to forgive, we don't need the Bible to tell us. Experience will tell us this. It'll make us lose sleep, bitterness that forms. It'll impact other relationships. If we have a relationship with God, it will affect that. It can steal our joy. What I think is happening in this text is Jesus is pulling the veil back. Now, this guy, of course, is an extreme example of it. I mean, he's just so on the other end of the spectrum of what the effects of evil are. But these are effects that can all happen in our life. It can take hold of us. It can, it can bind us. It can take power in a, uh, over us. And what's terrifying to me is when we think about it this way, if you have your Bibles, verse 3 says, and no one could bind him anymore. It just kept progressing. It kept growing in power. So we can, we can choose evil in our own lives. But here's what this text also shows us is we can also overlook, we can pass on good. We can give in to evil. We can choose that. But we can also overlook and, and say no to good. And, here's, and this is the more sobering of the thoughts, in, in my humble opinion. We see this in the villagers. Do you notice the villagers? They come out. And they hear the story of what Jesus had just done for this demoniac. They had healed him. Did you see how it played out? It says, verse 14, I'll read a little bit here. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this to the town and the countryside. And the people, the villagers, went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. That's interesting. If you think about it in parallel with the story of the storm, they're scared again of, of Jesus. Who is this? It goes on. Those who had seen all of the incidents, this healing of the man, told the villagers what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. 
Mental note that. It's interesting. What's the deal with the pigs? I told him about the pigs as well. And then verse 17, what's, what's so fascinating is then the people began to plead for Jesus to leave the region. Why would they do that? Jesus had just healed this guy, had done an amazing thing. They are seeing incredible power, and they want him to leave. I think it's because of the pigs. I'm serious. I think it's because of the pigs. And it's interesting that Mark highlights that. Because you see, why would the villagers be upset with Jesus? They were an agrarian society. And in that time, you know what the pigs meant? This luxury good? It meant their well-being. It meant their income. It meant their sense of security and comfort. It was their livelihood. And, what I, and, and when they saw those pigs drowned, what they saw was cash money going with it. What I believe the writer of Mark is showing us is this tragic juxtaposition that here is Jesus, powerful and able, offering something clearly for them, and them saying, you know what? Jesus, if you're asking me to change my life, if you're asking, if you're asking things to change, like, uh, no, thank you. I don't want it. This is tragic, but is this not natural? I mean, I feel like this is a Silicon Valley. This is something I struggle with. God, I have all that I need. I have enough. I don't need you. Uh, Becky Pippert, who wrote uh, a book called Out of the Salt Salt Shaker and Into the World, uh, put it this way. She said, we might think otherwise, but no no one is in control of our own lives. Uh, She argues this. She says, whatever you seek most in life becomes your Lord. It's unavoidable. And here's the quote. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by people he or she wants to please. We do not have control of ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. Jesus said it this way at one point. You cannot serve both God and money. We would like to think that that money is our tool to be used for our own means. But Jesus says, actually, in the spiritual realm of things, we are controlled by the God of money, by the the God of comfort or greed or whatever might be associated. This is why, for instance, I had a friend this week out of a big sigh say to me, I thought it was all about living life and things would be great when I had all that I needed and had all the money that I had, is what he was saying, that, that life would be fulfilling when I was making enough. What Pippert is saying, what the Bible teaches us, is if we choose anything over the unconditional love of Christ for acceptance, for purpose, for ultimate meaning and value, and these could be good things, career, relationships, whatever it might be, there will always be a vacuum. There will always be a Lord of our life. Strings being pulled that either we will never measure up to or can let us down. Conditional love. But this is ultimately why Jesus came, to provide liberation, freedom, and life. Uh, Jesus, now we see Jesus' power over evil. You know, I mentioned uh, earlier in verse 8, it says that uh, Jesus had tried to bring this demon out of this man, but uh, it didn't come out right away. But really, when you look at the, the whole of the story, it's no contest. In this spiritual battle of the legion versus Jesus, I mean, it's, it's not even game wasn't even played. I mean, you look at it in parallel with the story of the storm. Jesus said to the storm, he didn't call on any higher power. He didn't do any, you know, bust out a staff and say, Gandalf style, thou shall not pass. He didn't do any of that. He just said, quiet, be still. 
Same thing with this guy, this demon. He says, you want to go in the pit? Okay, go in the pigs. Just, okay, be gone. He didn't call on a higher power because Jesus is the higher power. He's showing us that he has, he's, he's Lord over creation, but he's also Lord of good over evil and all spiritual forces. And then, I, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Verse 14, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind. Uh, when you stop to think about this, for me personally, I think the greater miracle is not the storm. As scared as if that were to happen and I was on the boat, I think the scarier thing would have been seeing this guy healed. Because to me, having lived life long enough that I have, that would be nuts on the storm. But seeing a human heart change the way it was changed, that would be terrifying. Because I know the human heart. Now, what does this mean for us? That Jesus is Lord over, of good over evil? It means he has the power to set you and I free. He has the power to release the bindings that the lords that we choose in our life uh, have over us, even if we don't see them like the villagers. But uh, we have to receive him as Lord. And it's interesting that this is brought up in this text. The healed man, he wanted to go home, but Jesus said, it says in verse 19, hey, you can't come. Go home and tell your family how much the Lord has done for you. And the very next verse says, and he went telling how much Jesus had done for him. You know, Jesus is Lord for this man. And it's interesting to me, too, that the guy wanted to go with Jesus. That makes sense. Jesus, I want to keep riding this spiritual high. I want to go with you. It's going to be great. I get to spend time with you. I get to learn from you. I get to be equipped with you. I get to just be filled up. Jesus says, no, no, no. You, I got another plan for you. And what does this guy do? He, he accepts it. He says, you know what? My hope, my plan, my desire would be to go with you. But you don't want me to go there? That much is clear? You have another plan for me. I accept that. That's good. On the other hand, we see the villagers' response, and they are saying, Jesus is saying, here I am, but they are saying, you know what? You don't match my priorities, Jesus. No, thank you. I don't want you. So we see the difference between the man healed and the villagers is really a posture of saying, okay, Jesus, you are Lord. It's your will, not mine, and I will, I will accept that. I will go with that, and I believe as we take steps in that, the power of of the Lord's in our life begins to loosen. It begins to soften. Um, now, I just want to say a, a special, you know, note speaking to Christian friends. I think we can often say, okay, Jesus, you're Lord of my life. But at the end of the day, it's like, okay, you're Lord of my life until it comes to this area of my life. Uh, you know, I'm good following you here until it means changing this or following you here. Um, but I think when we do that, the only person we're fooling is ourselves. Because what we're doing is actually saying, you're Lord, relatively speaking, over here, but actually this is my Lord in this life. And that, that doesn't work. And when we, when we hold on to that, it still holds power over us. It can steal our joy. Finally, what I believe this text shows us is, is Jesus modeling for us, showing us that the power to unlock all of us is his mercy uh, for our own lives and for the lives of those around us. Verse 19 finishes by saying, go home, tell your family how much the Lord has done for you and how much mercy he has had on you. This whole text is just a spotlight on God's mercy to us through Jesus. First, in this man's life, Jesus says, I, I've had mercy on you. Uh, whether it was in a specific way that this guy had allowed evil into his life, or just generally speaking, knowing the human condition that none of us deserve, 
healing. He said, I have done this for you. I've had mercy. Go tell everybody. And he knows this guy's condition. He knows how scary and yucky it is, but he loves him. He accepts him. And what's more than that, he sends him. He has mercy on this man. The, Jesus has mercy on the villagers. He could have gone to the villagers and said, guys, you're, you're caring about things that you shouldn't carry about. And by the way, I'm God. Fall in. Follow me. But he doesn't do that. He just says, here I am. Actually, he leaves. They say go, and he leaves, which is kind of scary. He doesn't come back. But yet in leaving them physically and not coming back, he doesn't abandon them entirely because he still has mercy in giving them the story of this man who has seen God's mercy. This guy would go out and continue telling them they would still have a way to Jesus. And then finally, the biggest thing in this story is this foreshadows what Jesus would do on the cross, how he would ultimately end evil and spiritual darkness. Because remember how I said the disciples would have been saying, Jesus, why are we going here? This is enemy territory. They, they would have had no qualms of saying, we're going into, the, into evil. Like, why would we do this? And Jesus goes, but he doesn't go with the sword. He goes with his life. He could have taken the sword. He could have at this point, he had a big enough following. People wanted to make him king. He could have gone into the land and probably delivered some people for a short period of time. He could have done that. But instead, he went and he offered himself to this man. He said, I'm just going to heal you as I am. And what he showed, what, what this man showed is ultimately what Jesus would do for us. Because in the same way, Jesus went to the cross and on the cross, he was bound. He was stripped naked. He was cut. He, was, he cried out. And instead of living in the tombs, he was sent into the tomb. And in defeating evil, he didn't do it with the sword, it, one little patch of history, but he did it forever. And for each of us and each of our hearts. And in doing so, he showed us how light defeats darkness. Isn't this immensely helpful to us as we think about our culture today. I mean, there's a lot of us, a lot around us, interesting, darkness and the light. Maybe there's a couple more lights that need to come back on. Isn't this amazingly helpful? Think about it this way. We are trying to solve evil and darkness in any number of ways right now, but it can't come through better policy, a better politician. Why? Because evil doesn't just exist out there. It exists in each and every one of us. And if one power is overthrown, it's only overthrown by another power that's deeply flawed. But Jesus showed us the biggest response that a Christian could have, and that is mercy. Paul summarized it this way. And this is our response as Christians, by the way. As we think about what's happening in society today, he summarizes it this way in Romans 12. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It is not to say, oh, that group of folks is jacked up, they're messed up, they don't understand. It's to say, you know what, it all is messed up inside me, but praise God that he gives me mercy and he loves me and he loves us. And by the way, he loves you too. And that's really our goal as a church, is just to share the mercy of what God has done for us. That's it. Do you have a mess in your life? Is your life messy, past or present? And is your mess greater than this guy's mess in this story? No. But Jesus saw this guy's mess 
accepted him, loved him, sent him out. And he doesn't just, you know, want to love in spite of your mess. He wants to love because of your mess. That's the whole point of the church. That's the whole point of the gospel. That's what Jesus modeled on the cross, is laying down our lives for the sake of loving others. That's it. And by the way, that's something the world doesn't know. Something the world doesn't know. The world thinks, let's just go and let's take it, but we can't because there's something here. But the mercy of God is he wants to work in us, love us, by us giving our lives over to him and trusting him to live the sacrificial life he's called us to live. And in doing that, this seed can pierce through the greatest of adversity, storm, natural or spiritual. That's our call. Light and darkness. Today we're going to celebrate that uh, as we take communion. Uh, we are celebrating God's forgiveness. His mercy to heal us. But also his liberation in life that Jesus triumphs over evil, including in our own hearts. Let's pray. Father, this world is far more complicated than we, we tend to realize. We, we know this. We sense this. There's a lot of things we won't understand. There's a lot of evil around us of the minor variety and of the major variety, but we're so thankful that you triumph over it. And that you showed us the depths of your love, your unconditional love, not just by saying, hey, snap your fingers, be gone, spiritual darkness, but because you plunged into the pit of darkness on the cross to bring us out. And so this is what we thank you for and we love you for. May, may we be a church that just lifts, lifts you up quietly, but purposefully, intentionally, confidently, knowing that it's your love, it's your mercy that frees us and gives freedom to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.